we are continuing a series on Nahum. And the very word Nahum, the name Nahum, means comfort. Which may seem a little bit odd because the book of Nahum is filled with judgment. And so the entire theme of this book, while it talks about judgment, its goal is to give you comfort. Its goal is to give you consolation. Its goal is to give you encouragement. And the entire notion of having comfort through judgment may seem a little bit strange to us because we, particularly as Americans in the West, we do not like to talk about judgment. Judgment is something very negative in our minds, and we like things that are positive. Judgment can bring hurt or harm to people, and we don't like that. And judgment, and talking about it a lot, can make us look really grumpy. All we talk about is just these negative things because we just don't like our love people, so we're just going to talk about judgment. Likewise, judgment can make you look like an extremist. We look like these crazy people that just preach hellfire and brimstone. And so we don't like to talk about judgment. And much less we could ever think then that judgment could bring about something like comfort, something that could bring about peace. How is those two things related? How is that even possible? Because they seem so opposite. Judgment seems harsh, not soothing. Judgment seems to hurt, not heal. Judgment seems to bring people down, not bring people up. How can judgment and comfort be related? And that puzzles us, and we struggle with it, and we struggle against it because we think this is ridiculous. How, why would we ever want to talk about judgment, much less even talk about how it could bring resolution and comfort? And we just keep wrestling and wrestling and wrestling with these things unless we're talking about movies or books. And then it's a totally different story. You know, when the bad guy at the end of the movie he's beaten, everyone cheers. No one comes up and says, well, don't you think that was a little bit harsh? That was judgment. You know, he kind of got hurt. He's kind of dead. Why are you cheering? It's negative. You just grumpy? You just don't like people? Is that why everyone's cheering? Everyone who goes to movies, they're just a little bit paranoid? Well, why? Why are you like this? In fact, people... They like judgment in movies so much, they rewatch those parts of the movies. They even take clips of them and put them on YouTube so that people can watch them freely over and over and over again. Millions of views of these clips, they monetize on them. I decided to peruse some of these vengeance clips and read the comments. Just because I was curious, what did people say? People talk about, oh, how I enjoyed this scene. Oh, it was so perfect. Everything became resolved. You enjoyed judgment? You, you were delighted in it? The best comment was, whenever I have a bad day, I watch this. <laughs> you watch wrath, fury, In judgment, granted it's fictional, we get it, but you watch that with delight. And right there, 
Right there, you learn something. You learn that justice, yes, it's harsh. Judgment, yes, it is harmful. <clears throat> yes, there is punishment involved, but it can bring resolution to your soul. It can bring relief. It, just because judgment takes place doesn't mean justice isn't done. Actually, it's the opposite. When judgment takes place, justice is done. And that brings consolation to those who have been done wrong against. It's all in how you look at it. And a movie has built up a villain to be a villain. A movie has built up a bad guy to be a really bad guy. So that when the occasion comes and judgment is done and justice is truly pieced out, then we're fine with it. We're more than fine with it. We're happy. We're more than happy. We want to watch it more. We don't even just want to watch it more. We want to put it on YouTube so that everyone can watch it when they have a bad day. That's how happy we are. It's all on how you look at it. And what the book of Nahum does is it's telling Israel, when you see when Nineveh is judged, don't just let it go in one ear out the other. When you see the day that Nineveh falls per the prophecy of God, don't just shrug it off and say, well, there's just another piece of news. Don't just say, oh, look at that political situation. It's changing. Don't just say, oh, there's some international incident. You need to know how to look at it. You need to know all that God had in it. And when you do, when you do, and you look at it rightly, it's not just this harsh act. It is, no doubt about it. It's not just an act that brings about discipline and punishment. It is, but it's not just that. It's a moment whereby God has intended it to give his people comfort, to give his people encouragement, to give his people hope. And you say, how does that work? The entire way it works is in the passage we are in this morning. The passage that we are in this morning, Nahum chapter 1, verses 9 through 15, that passage is really, in a sense, the thesis of the book. It is to help you understand. Nahum wants to help us understand. Yes, you're going to see Nineveh burned to the ground, be flooded and burned at the same time in a very paradoxical way, but that just proves that prophecy is true. But when you see it, you don't just ignore it or gloss over it. You see it the way God wants you to see it. And when you do, you realize truly great is his faithfulness, great are his promises, and sure are his prophecies. All of them, yes and amen, not exaggerated. And that brings comfort to your soul. And that is what we are going to do this morning. Nahum 1, verse 9 through 15 helps us. It's the thesis. It explains to us, this is how you view it. Sure, judgment may not view and may not appear to be so consoling or helpful at first, but when you are taught here's how you look at it, here's the way you're supposed to see it, then it all makes sense. And Nahum 1, 9 through 15 is the prophet Nahum sitting us down and saying, this is how 
you're supposed to understand everything. Well, before we get there, there is a little bit of context that I want to give because it is so instructive, and it really will help us understand and understand with confidence that chapter 1, verse 9 through 15 is that thesis. It is that explanation. It is that narrowing, focused, concentrated look at the very entire point of the book. And the way we can understand it is that the opening The opening of Nahum 1, 1 through 8 has been general. It has been foundational. It has been about God's character. And there's a reason for this. You see, the book of Nahum, it's talking about the book, the city of Nineveh. And there is another book, as we all know, we've just had preaching on it, that has talked about the city of Nineveh. And that is the book of Jonah. You have to read Nahum and Jonah together. Facetiously, Jonah is a sad prophet who never could destroy the city of Nineveh. Nahum is his wish come true. But there is another way to think about this and probably more appropriate. You see, Nineveh, Nineveh, and in Jonah's time, experienced mercy. In Nahum, they will experience wrath. There are many parallels between Nahum and Jonah. There's a lot of words that actually are shared uniquely between the two books. A lot of phrases that are found in one part of the book that are now found in the book of Nahum. In fact, here's something fascinating. Only Jonah and Nahum conclude with a question. Only Jonah and Nahum conclude with a question. And it's a powerful question at the end. I'm not going to steal anybody's thunder, although I think I might be preaching the end. But it doesn't matter. I'm not going to steal my own thunder or God's thunder. It it is an amazing end to the book. It's so profound. I was even telling Joe this. We were writing commentary on Nahum uh, this past month. It's probably why both of us lost our voice. We're just talking so much about it. And you never think this book could teach you so many lessons, but it does. It does. And perhaps foundationally, and this is what we have to understand in this contrast, is that the Ninevites, they experienced one side of God. That's what you have to know so far. With Jonah, they saw God's mercy. They saw that God was slow to anger. They saw that God was patient and that God would restrain his wrath. They saw that God could actually forgive. And this is what happened. They assumed that that meant that they could do whatever they wanted. And Nahum walks in and says, you have forgotten Nineveh. You have forgotten that our God is not just one-sided. And so listen, look at with me at this opening words of this text. Look at it with me as Nahum proclaims. This is foundational. Do you really have a complete, balanced view of God? Nahum 1 verse 3. Yahweh is slow to anger. What's fascinating about this is that's what we heard in the Old Testament in Exodus. We knew that he was slow to anger. This is celebrated in the Psalms. But if you remember in the book of Jonah, 
When Nineveh is spared, what does Jonah say? Knew you would have mercy. And the Ninevites took advantage of that. And the Ninevites presumed upon that. And they thought that this would always be the way it was to be. But notice what happens before that phrase and after that phrase. God is not just slow to anger. Verse 2, above, before this phrase is ever uttered, the context of it is he is also what? A jealous and avenging God. Yes, Yahweh is slow to anger, but he is jealous and he is avenging. Ninevites do not think there is only one side to God. Verse 3, yes, he is slow to anger, but he's also great in power. You do not provoke God. He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Nineveh, you only had one side to God, and you presumed upon that side, you're in trouble. Because that's not the only side to God that there is. How about this? Look at verse 3, the end of it. In whirlwind and storms is his way. Clouds are the dust beneath his feet. Now, if you think about the book of Jonah, it doesn't take much time of thought to think that there were whirlwind and there was storm. Was there not in the book of Jonah? Of course there was. But of course, if the Assyrians and the Ninevites were thinking, that didn't hurt them. That hurt who? God's prophet Jonah. He was the one tossed over the boat. He was the one that was disobedient. And so what was their thinking? That's against him over there. That's against them over there. That's not about us. What's Nahum's warning to Nineveh? What God can do against the disobedient prophet, he can do against the disobedient people. Do not presume about God. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. That was helpful for Jonah. He got him back on dry land. He showed mercy. That is God did. But that doesn't mean he will always. Verse six, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? The Ninevites knew that God was angry with them. The Ninevites knew that their wickedness had gone to heaven. The very fact that God sent a prophet to say as much is indicative of that reality. But they thought this, God's anger subsided. That's why we're not punished anymore. That's why we're free and clear. That's why the city wasn't destroyed after 40 days. What is God reminding them in Nahum? Just because I wasn't angry then doesn't mean I can't be angry now. You've only thought of one side of God. Verse 7, Yahweh is good. Of course he's good. The Ninevites knew he was good. They relished in his goodness. But verse 8 shows the contrast. But with an overwhelming flood, overflowing flood. Those words are so rich and so ironic. Not to steal the thunder of the person preaching chapter 2, which is you, yes? But you need to know this. Part of the prophecy of Nineveh's destruction and the way it actually archaeologically takes place is that Nineveh will flood. Nineveh will flood. They worship the fish god, and now they'll flood. And God will flood them out. He will overwhelm them with water. Just because he was good to you does not mean he will always show such benevolent mercy especially when you persist in your sin. 
So many lessons here. It's a reminder, Nahum 1, to us. Nahum wants us to make sure that we don't just think of God with some of his attributes, but with all. That we don't just think about God in the ways that we like, and we're the church that picks out the attributes we appreciate. No, we think of God as he truly is. Nahum says, Nineveh, your problem is this. You like to cherry pick the attributes that are most convenient to you. They're not the only ones guilty of this. And this is a warning. A warning for believers and unbelievers alike. Don't just think God is the Santa Claus in heaven that gives you presents. Don't think that God is the vending machine that you just press a button and you pray to, and because he is merciful and he has common grace and the rain falls upon the just and the unjust, that you'll be fine. There's another side of God. There is a complete character that he has. And it is then a reminder fundamentally that God is wrathful. If you remember Pastor Joe's message the other day, this is an incomplete alphabet, an incomplete acrostic psalm. Normally, every line of such a poem would have one letter corresponding with the alphabet, one line corresponding with each letter of the alphabet. But this is cut off in the middle of the alphabet. Why? Because in the same way, Nineveh will be suddenly cut off. God is wrathful. Don't presume upon that. And speaking of which, we should never presume upon God. There are times in our lives and in lives that we can observe where people do get away with their sin. It's true. In this life, sometimes people escape immediate consequences. And we know that. And before we say, oh yeah, I see that on the news, we can see it in our own lives and in our own hearts. Nineveh is a case study to remind you the city that found mercy is in the end the city that is destroyed. Why? Because you don't always get away with it. You don't always get away with it. And when you presume upon God's mercy and you presume upon God's kindness, you won't get away with it in the end. Nineveh is a case study of both the mercy and the judgment of God with the solemn reminder of exactly what it says in Romans, the kindness of God should lead us to repentance. That's what it should do. And Nineveh should have known that when God spared their souls, they should have known what do we need to continue to be and to do? Repent. And when they did not, when instead they betrayed the God that saved them and killed the people that actually came to tell them, even against their own will, the good news. God would not spare them. God would destroy them. This is the character of God. This is the foundation for everything that Nahum is going to be talking about. But that's not the thesis of the book. This is a thesis that needs specialization. This is a thesis that needs specification. And so having established the character of God, that's why verse 9 and such begins to apply it 
begins to show how it works. And that is precisely the text that we are in now. It helps us to understand, okay, God does have this wrath. He does have this character. We understand that. But, but how does that relate to comfort? Verse 9 and following shows the specificity of his wrath and shows how it leads to comfort. That's why we call it the thesis. And there are really three ways in which this takes place. Three ways. Three ways. Three ways that God's judgment brings comfort. And if you just want to write down these three ways, we'll go through them. But shows his character, affirms his promises, affirms his prophecy. Those are three ways that God's judgment brings comfort. And let's look at the first way. It brings about comfort because it shows his character. This is found in verses 9 through 13. Verse 9 through 13. And what happens in this, and and there's a lot going on and a lot being described of how God will conquer the Assyrians, how God will triumph over the Ninevites. But the pattern is this, and this is the pattern that you need to understand, is that in every phrase, in every idea, what God revealed about his character in the past will be embedded in the description. Look at verse 9 with me. (coughs) (coughs) Whatever you devise against Yahweh, notice the next phrase, he will make a complete destruction of it. Do you see the words complete destruction? Look at verse 8, listen to it with me. He will make a complete destruction of its place. Do you see how the same phrase is repeated? Verses 1 through 8 talk about the character of God. And the very words used to describe his character will be found in the very specific way he will deal with the Ninevites. And that's important because what it shows is that what happens to the Ninevites completely conforms to his character. It shows that what happens is that his character is not just some abstract, hypothetical idea out there that never touches our lives, that never really touches history. No, it is actually what determines and shapes history. And that is one of the most encouraging things to realize because everything will match God's character in the end. Everything his justice, and his mercy. And let's just see how this plays out a little bit in verses 9 through 15. So what what aspects of his character come about? Well, it's his sovereignty. That's one. That's verse 9. Whatever you devise against Yahweh, people make plans. The Ninevites are clever. They're shrewd negotiators, shrewd military strategists, and they think that they can wage war and resist Yahweh. Notice what it says. He will make a... Complete destruction of it. God's sovereignty is unstoppable. The word complete destruction, like we said, is found describing God's character in verse 8. His sovereignty. That yes, although he is good, but at the same time, he can completely will through an overwhelming and overflowing flood, a complete destruction of a place. It will be brought to nothing. Nothing can resist it. Nothing can oppose it. And the result of it is that nothing will stand in the end. He will make a complete destruction of it. This matches how powerful, how intense, how mighty, how effective is his nature. It is truly sovereign. 
and just to show you the effectiveness of his sovereignty, notice the next phrase, distress will not rise up twice. You say, what does that even mean? Well, the word distress can have the idea of being confined, constrained. It often is used actually for besieging somebody. And so the idea is God will not send the trial against Nineveh. God will not send opposition against Nineveh. God will not send a a siege against Nineveh twice. He only needs one time and then he'll take him out. That is true effectiveness. And if you don't understand the nature of that effectiveness, one of the simplest ways I think we can grasp by way of contrast This notion that distress will not rise up twice with our own ineptitude is any kind of home repair you ever try to do in your life. You go to Home Depot, and everyone there says, see you later. They never say bye. Why? Because they know you're going to come back. That's the nature of home repair. At a point of time, you just know it's more efficient to have one part of your family locked into Home Depot, just leave them there for the day, and then you should be at home doing your own thing, and you just keep calling them and say, buy that, buy that, buy that, buy that, buy that, because you know it saves gas. Why make the trip back and forth, back and forth, back and forth? I mean, it's a good test of patience, but you know you're not effective. Home repair, it doesn't just happen one time. One try, you're done. Never. Okay. That's why their business does so well. But for our God, for our God, distress does not rise up twice. He only needs one shot, and he will end you because he is that sovereign. He is that effective. That is the nature of our God. Nineveh, you have plans. You think you can outsmart God? You cannot. You think you can resist God? He will completely destroy you. And you think that you could wage a defensive guerrilla war to perhaps resist? There is no resistance. It's one and done. That is the nature of the sovereignty of God. And again, that matches his character. When Israel sees that there is one enemy of Nineveh, one siege that takes place, and then they're gone. They shouldn't just say, well, okay, guess that means the bad guys were pretty bad, or that the opposing army of the Babylonians was very effective. They need to understand that's the character of their God on display. He's that powerful. He's that effective. He's that sovereign. He's not just sovereign. He's also severe, verse 10. This is another aspect of his character, the severity of God. Talks about tangled thorns. Tangled thorns are thorns that are dried up and easily set on fire. They're just meant to be burned. They kind of pop when the flames hit them, and they just disintegrate on impact. And those who are drunken with their drink are people so inebriated, they are essentially incapacitated. You, you've seen or have understood the character of those who are in this kind of state. They just lay on the ground. They can't do anything. And so here's the imagery with two dissimilar images, but they form a composite picture. You have complete and utter consuming fiery destruction, and you have no ability to resist. You have no ability to stop it. You have no ability to fight it off. 
It's just a complete rampage. It's a complete rampage of wrath. And so like it says this, they are consumed. The fire just eats every single thing in the city till it is no more. And the final phrase is this, as stubble fully dried up. Look in the text with me. Look at verse 4. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. And we think, yeah, that's a great metaphor. Yeah, that's a great simile. Yeah, that's a great piece of imagery. God can do that hypothetically. No, no, no. He doesn't just do that hypothetically. He does it with Nineveh. He essentially makes them so dry that the city, when set on fire, it just becomes ash to the ground and nothing remains of it at all. And this is archaeologically true. After Nineveh was destroyed at this time, Nineveh was never rebuilt for 300 years. 300 years. In fact, interestingly enough, people didn't even know where the city was for a period of time because it was so destroyed. It took archaeologists many tries to locate the area of Nineveh. It's gone. And when Israel would hear this, and then when Israel would see this, and when they would hear the messengers come and explain this to them, they shouldn't just say, well, that was interesting. Oh, too bad for them. Ha <laughs> ha, I feel better already. No, that's not what they should say. They should understand this is the character of our God. He's the one who makes the sea rebuked and makes it dry. And he made them so dry, they burned to the ground. This is our God. This is his character. Well, it's not just that God is sovereign or severe. He's supreme. Look at verse 11. Look at verse 11. From you has gone forth one who has devised evil against Yahweh. This is talking not about the nation of Assyria as a whole. From you has gone forth one, one leader. It's talking about their king. It's talking about their ruler who has led them on this path of insanity to try to plot and outsmart Yahweh. And notice what his name is. He is a vile counselor. The word vile here, it actually is the Hebrew word belial, which sounds like vile, which is why the LSB chose the word vile so that they would match. But in any case, vile denotes the worst possible behavior, the worst kind of reputation. In fact, belial in Hebrew is often associated with Satan. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 says, what does Christ have to do with belial? And that is talking about Satan. This is a satanic leader. This is a satanic leader, this vile counselor who led Nineveh, satanically motivated, satanically influenced, used for Satan's purposes but he will be put down. He will be killed. He will be killed. And you say, well, what does that point to? Think about this with me. You've heard of a vile counselor here in this text, but that should remind you of a different counselor that you've remembered. One that you may have even remembered around the time of Christmas. Almighty God, a wonderful counselor, prince of Peace, Isaiah chapter 9. And here is the message of verse 11. Yes, Israel, 
you will see the king of Nineveh killed. Yes, Israel, you will hear that the ruler of this wicked nation will be put down. But you cannot just say, well, I'm glad because that guy wasn't a very nice guy. He was a vile counselor. No, what you need to understand is this is a reflection of God and his character that in the end, there will only be one counselor that stands. Only one and one and only one. And it will never be a vile counselor. It will be who? the wonderful counselor, the very son of God, the prince of peace, the Lord Jesus Christ. When you see this moment, Israel, you need to know what God is doing. Only one counselor will stand at the end, and it will be God's son. This is about God's character. It is supreme. It is supreme over human rulers. It is supreme over Satan. It is supreme because it is about his son. So you have the supremacy of God's character, the severity of God's character, the sovereignty of God's character. Here's his mercy. Here's his mercy. Thus says Yahweh, though they are at full strength and likewise many. That's an apt description of the Assyrians. They're both strong and many, which is the best combination. Because if you have only one strong guy, you can take him down. If you have many weak people, you can take them down. But when you have many, many strong people, then they're difficult to take down. But what does God say? Even so, they will be cut off and pass away. The word cut off is a word that is used for shearing of sheep. They will just be separated, disconnected, and then washed away. That's the notion of pass away, washed away. Again, like a flood, like a flood. The bad guys will go away. God's discipline of his people will go away. Notice, though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no longer. Your relationship will change. Not only that, but they will have freedom. He will break his yoke bar from upon you. Often the the subjugation of a nation under another nation was denoted by a yoke, a yoke of iron that was so heavy upon somebody that will be broken. Israel will experience that. And notice the final phrase, I will break your bands apart. What does that even mean? These bands were normally like chains, normally like handcuffs almost, that bound somebody and constrained somebody. In fact, this phrase, interestingly enough, is exactly found in Psalm 107. Psalm 107. And in Psalm 107, two things are very important to understand. First, these bands dealt with people's emotions, that people were bound under their grief. They were bound under their sorrow. They were bound under the weight of their own misery. And God says, I'll break those free for you. I will break those free for you. And that's because of the second thing, because here's the refrain of Psalm 107. Give thanks for the loving kindness of our God. Give thanks for the loving kindness of our God. Give thanks for the loving kindness of our God. What do you think God is showing here in verses 12 and 13 of Nahum 1? His what? Loving kindness. It is all about his mercy. And you say, how do we put all this together? Well, we've seen all these different aspects of Nineveh's destruction and God's mercy upon the nation of Israel in this. But what we need to see in it is a pattern, 
a pattern where it is God's character on display every single time, whether that be in his severity, whether that be in his sovereignty, whether that be in his supremacy, or whether that be in his mercy and loving kindness, it is on display. And here is why that matters. Because often when we think about God's character, we just think of these descriptions about God that are just out there. They're abstract. They're hypothetical. They're theoretical. They're just things that we know about God, but they really have no bearing on your life. They have no bearing on this world. Nothing can be further from the truth. What Nahum is saying to Israel is, Israel, look at this moment that will happen. And when you see it, you will see in its intensity, the entire nature of God. You will see as the city is burning his severity. You will see his sovereignty as they could not stop him. You will see his supremacy as the king who defied God is told in place of ultimately in the end, the king of kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you feel the liberation of your own soul and the vindication you have that the foe that did you such harm is now demolished, know this, God in that moment gave you loving kindness. This is the character of God. We think often about life and everything apart from God's character. But here's what we need to remember. God will make it exactly in conformity to his character in the end. For judgment, that means the judgment will be as harsh as God's character is. But know this also the sweetness of his loving kindness. And as much as we know his mercy and his love is so lavish, so generous, so rich, so free, so pure, so it will be in the end. The world will match that as well. Put it this way. I'm not good at anything in life outside of maybe studying the Bible. And I'm not really a perfectionist about anything in life, except maybe about studying the Bible, and maybe not even that. So when you talk about putting together furniture, you know, making a table level, I don't care. <laughs> you know, 45-degree tilt on the table just makes typing an exciting experience. <laughs> but I have relatives, thank the Lord for them. And they are perfectionistic, like my father-in-law. He's amazing. And he'll make sure the table's so level, you put a ball on there, and it won't move until the Lord returns. <laughs> the product matches the character. And what God is showing about Nineveh's destruction is you get a taste of how the product will match the character. And that is horrifying if we're talking about judgment. But that is the heart's hope if you're talking about mercy. And in the future, and in the end, saints, God will be satisfied in the way this world will be. And if that is judgment, you know how intense it will be. But if it is about the love and the delight and the loveliness and the perfection of everything God has and everything God wants for his own, it 
will be so because his character will not rest until he is that satisfied. The product will match its maker. And that is the point of Nahum 9, 1, 9 through 13. God's character will be revealed. And when you see Nineveh fall to the ground, you know God's character is not abstract. It's concrete. It determines everything. Well, here's the second point. God's, hey, to be fair, 9 through 13 was, was many more verses than 14 and 15. Okay? As my wife says, I'm no John MacArthur. So here we are, verse 14. Verse 14, here's the second point. God brings us comfort. Why? Because he affirms his promises. He affirms his promises. Verse 14, Yahweh has commanded concerning you. This deals with not just how God will conquer the city of Nineveh that we saw in verses 9 through 13, but the consequences on Nineveh. What will result as as a matter of fact after all that he will do? And this is what God has commanded. This is so important to understand the nature of God's word. You see, God's word is a command in a way. It determines history. History doesn't prove God's word. God's word is what commands and directs all of history. It is that certain. It is more certain than the history we have. Why? Because it actually decrees the history into existence. And so here Yahweh has commanded concerning you. And it's an odd phrase. There will no longer be seed from your name. On one hand, we can kind of understand in the awkward wording, and it would be awkward not only to an English speaker, but to those in the Hebrew time, and in, in, in those of the Hebrew language, it would be awkward to them, that there will be no offspring for the Ninevites, so that their nation would no longer be large. And furthermore, their nation would no longer have a name. Their nation would no longer be supported to have a reputation, to have fame, to be recognized. And if you don't understand how kind of awkward this can be or how shameful or embarrassing this can be, it, it doesn't take much. Just think about sometimes people from other countries, particularly when they come to America, because we as Americans are terrible at geography, period. And, they say, and you say, oh, where are you from? And they give you a nation. And how often is it that Americans say, never heard of it? And then people say, yeah, I know, it's a small country. It's a small country. There was not much seed to support your name, from your name. Assyria, though, was a massive country. Assyria, though, was a world's first superpower. And for a certain period of time, people will say, you're from where? Never heard of it. Doesn't even exist. Doesn't have a name. And you say, why does that matter? Why is it written so awkwardly? On one hand, we can make sense of it. But on the other hand, what's the significance of it? Look at those words, seed and name. Seed and name. The Abrahamic covenant. God said to Abraham, I will make your name great. And in your seed, all the nations will be blessed. Nineveh will not have a name because God has given his name and the great name to his own people, Israel. They will not have a seed. Why? Because the seed promise belongs not to them, but to who? 
to Israel. And God says, look at what happens to them. I am keeping my promise to you. I'm keeping my promise, God says, not only on the natural level, but also on the supernatural level. Notice, from the house of your gods, God will cut off graven image and molten image. He will destroy idolatry. He will prove that the idols and the religion and the culture and the cult of Assyria was nothing. It was nothing, and he tears it apart. But where have you heard the phrase, graven image and molten image? You've heard it in the Ten Commandments. You shall not make these things. God has wrath against these things. You are making God into something he is not. And here, God, with the nation of Nineveh, or the city of Nineveh, and the nation of Assyria, he is demonstrating how he upholds his zeal for the theology of those promises and of those commands with these people. You will never be able to mistake God for a false image, a false idol. You could never demote God or demean God into something that is created as opposed to the fact that he is creator. God will always uphold exactly what he said. And Israel, when they see the destruction and the pillaging of the temple and how it burns to the ground of the city of Nineveh, they need to realize that's because these idols, they are nothing. And only our God rules. You need to know how to look at it. When we see worlds come and nations come and go and nations fall apart and all that they relied on collapse underneath them, we don't just say, oh, well, yeah, I guess they got what's coming to them. No, we say this, of course that's what's going to happen because there is only one you rely on and that is our God. And anything else you try to rely on is just a broken rod. It will never support you. And notice why, for you are contemptible. The word contemptible means to be insignificant. It means to be light. It means to be so unworthy, so valueless that you are viewed as disgusting and despicable and no one cares about you. No one loves you. Everyone despises you. In fact, this is the word for cursed. And if you remember, we've been talking about God's promises. We've been talking about even the Abrahamic covenant. What, was, what did God say in his promises to Abraham? I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. Same word. Same word. Israel, when you see Nineveh burned to the crown, remember God's promises are true. They cursed you. So what? I cursed them. And I made them a national grave just to let you know I keep my word. Do you want to know why judgment brings comfort? Because in judgment, you see God's promises upheld. And we have that as a matter of fact with the city of Nineveh. After all, the city of Nineveh, we know Secular history books and archaeological textbooks and every kind of dictionary about ancient society will tell you Nineveh is dead and gone. It's over. This is a fact of history. And we need to know then God's promises, they're a fact of history. They're that sure. They're that certain. But even more than that, how often even in our own lives, we fail to recognize in God's providence that he has kept his promises. 
that he has kept his promises, that he hasn't failed. And how often, even more than that, we may have even recognized that he kept his promises, but we never remember when the next trial hits, we just forget that he kept his promises even yesterday, even the previous hour, and we just it just exits our mind because we are so neglectful. Brothers and sisters, why is there comfort in judgment? Because God keeps his promises, and they are evident there. We must recognize them. We must remember that. Finally, it's not just that God's character is on display. It's not just that his promises are affirmed. It's that his prophecies are affirmed. Prophecies are affirmed. Verse 15. When Nineveh is destroyed, there won't just be consequences on Nineveh, verse 14. There will be consequences for Israel, verse 15. And here are the consequences. Here's what's going to happen for Israel. They're going to see on the mountain, the mountains by Jerusalem, the feet of him who proclaims good news. There's going to be a messenger who runs to Jerusalem saying, I've got good news. There's victory. That's what good news means. It's victory. And the victory is going to announce and produce what? Look at the rest of verse 15. Peace. Why? Because if the bad guy is destroyed, that buys you a little bit of time for your own respite. And when Israel sees this messenger come, and when Israel sees him proclaiming good news, which, by the way, in Greek is the word euangelizo, which is where we get the word evangelism and gospel from. When Israel sees that, they should have this moment, I guess, shall we say, of inverse deja vu. Deja vu is usually when you remember something that happened now and it seems similar to the past, yes? Inverse deja vu, which only occurs here, is when you remember something now that's going to happen in the future. It's like foreshadowing. I guess maybe that's what it really is. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 52, it says this, How blessed are the feet of those who proclaim good news, who announce peace. Sound familiar? Same words, same words. Nahum is the near prophecy that proves the far prophecy of Isaiah. Nahum is the near prophecy that proves the far prophecy of Isaiah. Sometimes a prophet would say, hey, this is going to happen in the future, down, down the line. And people would say, well, how do we know you're telling the truth? And he would give a near prophecy, one that would come true immediately, to verify that the far prophecy is exactly like he said. Nahum is the near prophecy that proves that everything in Isaiah will come true. And when Nineveh is so destroyed, and when Israel received this messenger, and this is all a matter of historical fact now in this present time, here's what Israel and here's what we learn. Everything Isaiah prophesied, it's not hyperbole. It's not exaggeration. It's not fantasy. It's not fiction. It's not nice thinking, positive ideas. It will be equally a historical fact. You want the lion laying down with the lamb. You want the whole world rejuvenated. You want all the nations carrying Israel back to the promised land. You want God's glory filling the earth so that there's no need for a son. That's not figurative. That's God's point. 
I made something earlier to show you what I said is exactly what I meant. This is the affirmation of prophecy. And what do you do in light of that? Notice the next phrase is, celebrate your feasts, O Judah. (coughs) Celebrate them all. There are three major feasts in Israel. Passover, Feast of Booths, Feast of Weeks. Why do you celebrate those? Because they all talk about salvation. Passover, celebration from deliverance from Egypt. Wilderness is being, people are delivered from the wilderness in the Feast of Tabernacles. And in the Feast of Weeks, you are looking for the first fruit, the first initial harvest of deliverance. Celebrate your feasts. Pay your vows. A vow is not like a free will or a voluntary offering because it's not voluntary. A vow is an offering because you recognize God did something in your life, and so now you're going to pay back what you promised because God had acted. Israel should know God has acted in salvation. And this salvation of Nineveh, yeah, it's small. It's about one city. But what it links with is the entire book of Isaiah. And it will be for something for the whole future, something so grand, something so universal. They know that's not just an idea. That's not just a lofty notion. That will be historical fact, just like it is historical fact right now with Nineveh. And that's why the verse ends with this. For never again will the vile one pass through you. The satanic leader, gone. Why? Because when Isaiah is fulfilled, the Messiah will crush the head of who? Satan. He is cut off completely. The prophecy will be fulfilled exactly as is. You get it. And Nahum reminds us, when you see God's judgment, yeah, it's harsh. Yeah, it's hard. But it's God's character on display. It's God's promises affirmed. It's God's prophecy affirmed as well. And that gives you hope because you know the God who it has a character like that will make the end sure. You know that what he promised will continue on because he's faithful. And you know that what he prophesied is not just an abstract idea or a figurative notion, but it's that real. It's that real. And that's why you have hope. And that's why you have consolation. It's all in how you look at it, and Nahum allows us to look at this the right way so that we can look to the future and know that our comfort is sure. Shall we pray? Our God and Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you for the character of, your, of yourself, which makes the end so beautiful, intense in its justice, but also beautiful and lovely and magnificent and magnanimous in its mercy. We thank you that you always keep your promises. That's found in every moment of history. And that even there are moments of history that demonstrate your prophecy is sure. It will happen exactly like you said, just like it already happened exactly like you said. Give us that confidence in you. And in times that we are troubled, in times that we are struggling, may our eyes always rest on this reality that there is comfort through judgment. And you have demonstrated that in this text and in that moment of history. In your name we pray. Amen.